Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our pediatric grand rounds. Uh, great to see everyone virtually. Uh, I know you're there. Uh, I can tell. I can see you through the uh, through the screen here. So uh, I'm glad you're able to join us once again to our series uh, on on Tuesday, and uh, many of you have also joined us on Fridays for the Ask the Experts session. We'll have another one this Friday. Uh, this morning we have uh, an outstanding presentation. Uh, from uh, one of our pediatricians in, in New York. And, uh, you know, she, she is coming from uh, Midtown Manhattan, although I, I think she's been doing mostly virtual visits uh, from one of the children's hospitals located right in the center of, uh, of what I call the hot zone in New York. Uh, and to introduce her uh, this morning, uh, it, we'll have Dr. Jeffrey Factor. Uh, all of you know Dr. Factor. He, he's a staple in our community. Uh, one of the top, top allergists, uh, really, in, in, in New England, uh, who's done a tremendous job over the years uh, helping us and helping our kids uh, with uh, anything related to allergy and immunology uh, for pediatrics and also adult patients. And, and Dr. Factor will introduce uh, Dr. Nowak, uh, and uh, she will be giving a presentation called Food Protein-Induced Enterocolitis Syndrome. An update, I really appreciate both of you for joining us virtually. Uh, Jeff, from I believe us in this in his home uh, here in, in, in the Hartford area, um, and Anna is uh, from her home in the, in the New York area. Uh, both are, are safe. Uh, they're not wearing masks because they're not around anyone. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe their kids or their, their grandchildren, or I'm not sure. Um, and uh, again, I think you will enjoy this presentation. So Jeff, take it over, and then we'll come back for questions at the end. Thank you, Juan. It's, it's my privilege to welcome Anya Nowak to Connecticut Children's to give grand rounds this morning. Anya is, is a major figure in the allergy and immunology community with a particular focus on pediatric food allergy conditions. She uh, hails from Poland where she did her early medical training and most recently received a PhD in medicine. In the US, she completed her pediatric residency at the University of Maryland and then her allergy and immunology fellowship at a place called Johns Hopkins University. Uh, subsequently, Anya joined the faculty of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, where much of her seminal research was conducted. She rose to the level of full professor of pediatrics at Mount Sinai before leaving uh, Mount Sinai to move on to the NYU School of Medicine in August of 2019. Anya has awards and achievements, presentations, and publications really too numerous to count. Her area of expertise includes specifically food allergy immunotherapy, immunomodulation with baked egg and milk and food allergic children, anaphylaxis, and today's topic, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, where she may, and I would say is, the, in fact, the world expert. Uh, Anya's always been very pleasant and, uh, and approachable and it's my pleasure to introduce uh, her today to, the, uh, to give grand rounds. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, um, for this very kind introduction. And thank you all for having me to give those grand rounds and to give me opportunity to, uh, to talk about my um, uh, special interest, clinical and research interest. So let me just share my screen. Um, So I hope you can see, um, hold on, slideshow. Can you see my slides? Yes. I, yeah. Okay, yeah, okay, great, thank you. All right, so I'm talking about uh, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, um, just to give you an update what's happening, and it's, um, there's been some uh, substantial activity. Here are my disclosures. Um, some of them relate to the clinical trials uh, in food immunotherapy, but I'm also the chair of the medical advisory board for the International FIS Association. So the objectives for today are to describe phenotypes of FBIS, to discuss the approach to diagnosis, um, and to talk about management. So, um, you know, as allergists, we are very particular about definition of food allergy. Food allergy is an immune system mediated adverse food reaction. And most of you are probably very familiar with Ig mediated food reactions. The most severe uh, manifestation is being that of potentially fatal anaphylaxis, uh, the most common being uh, acute hives or urticaria. 
Um, then there is a middle category of the um, sort of mixed pathophysiology conditions that are more chronic, and these include atopic dermatitis and eosinophilic gastroenteritis or uh, uh, esophagitis. And then the, the third category uh, is broadly referred to as non-IG-mediated food allergies. And uh, um, FPIs or food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome is included in this category. And the reason why they're referred to as non-IG-mediated um, reactions, because for the majority of the, of the affected uh, patients, there's no evidence of systemic Ig. So when we do our testing by skin testing, by blood testing, we don't find the evidence of food-specific IgE. Um, and this presents some, some significant diagnostic uh, challenge and also an obstacle to studying because we don't have great biomarkers. But nevertheless, uh, patients are coming. And, um, you know, I admit this has been my uh, special interest over the years when I, I first came to um, Mount Sinai. Uh, it was one of the projects that was sort of given to me by Hugh Sampson and Scott Sisher, who said, oh, just look at the small group of children that have uh, reactions to rice and oat. And that's how it started. But, um, and over the past 20 years, uh, it seems like this um, condition has been registering more and more on the radar uh, of the allergist. Um, and this is just an example of the publications that, that uh, were retrieved through PubMed search. Um, and uh, you can see there was dramatic uptake um, in, the, in the past two decades. So uh, certainly there is increased chatter and you know, we can always uh, this sort of question whether this reflects increased awareness and recognition, but um, you know, it may also be that we're just simply seeing more of those patients. <clears throat> so who, what is FBIs? Well, I thought I, um, I would in illustrate it with, um, with an example from my uh, practice. So this was actually uh, girls, um, three-year ident identical twins who, who are born via C-section, uh, who are otherwise healthy. Um, and when they came to see me, uh, they were avoiding cow's milk, all, all dairy products, soy, egg. Uh, they were fed uh, with cow's milk, so their, their history was relevant for that um, since birth. They were fed with a cow's milk formula, and after three weeks, uh, Alice developed diarrhea, dehydration, and, and she received uh, intravenous hydration uh, in the outpatient setting, and her sister Anna uh, had, was more severe. She had more severe dehydration with uh, metabolic derangements, and she was actually admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit. And at that point, a sort of empiric um, diagnosis was made um, of some kind of reaction to the Kausamuk formula, um, and they were switched to the amino acid-based formula, and, and all symptoms resolved, and the girls were thriving. So then uh, by 11 months of age, they uh, were... Um, upon recommendation from the pediatrician, they were introduced to yogurt, so cow's milk protein, and within four hours, uh, both developed repetitive repetitive projectile vomiting, diarrhea, which led to dehydration that was treated with intravenous fluids and Zofran in the pediatric emergency department. So um, these, uh, the, the, those two girls uh, very nicely illustrate two phenotypes of, of FBIs. So there is a chronic phenotype, which they manifested early in infancy when they're being continuously fed with the food. Um, and then the second, when they were older, it's called referred to as acute FBIs, where it has this very peculiar, you know, um, uh, symptom constellation uh, that starts within uh, one to four hours uh, after feeding with the food. So um, another important uh, point uh, is that this phenotype occurs in the same uh, patient. So it really depends on the dose and the frequency of food allergy ingestion. So if it's something, if it's the food is um, uh, ingested intermittently, uh, then acute symptoms appear um, and they are pretty uh, self-limiting, even though they can be quite severe, but usually resolve within 24 hours without any sequelae in children that have acute FBIs are thriving. Um, but if they're fed with this, uh, with, with the food, you know, uh, over periods of uh, weeks or, or months, um, then uh, the symptoms go into the chronic phase, and then it takes much longer for the symptoms to resolve. Um, and some of the extreme cases required in the literature, not in my in my practice were uh, required uh, total parental nutrition for the bowel and, and bowel arrest. 
So let's just recap those phenotypes. So the one that I, as allergists, see the most frequently is an acute. Um, and uh, this is uh, defined as ingestion that occurs intermittently uh, following a period of avoidance. So, so you know, this may mean several days or may mean several months or years, as in the case of those, uh, those girls. Um, and the onset of MS is also always within one to four hours. Um, and this emesis is just not like your, your sort of regular emesis. It's like sometimes parents, uh, you know, describe as exorcist um, type of emesis, very forceful projectile um, and, you know, uh, may go on for, for hours. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a spectrum of severity, but, but some of those that, that have significant reaction may vomit, you know, 15, 20, 30 times. Um, and it's uh, accompanied by this a very ill appearance. So frequently, um, or you know, if you if you witness the food challenge, there is this lethargy, limpness, uh, sort of dusky appearance, a septic appearance. And if those children are brought to the emergency room, um, they are frequently, you know, undergoing a full sepsis evaluation um, that is negative, and that they're being discharged with the presumptive diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis. In some series, 20% uh, 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 had been described to go into hypovolemic shock. Uh, in some of those series, uh, methemoglobulinemia has been reported as a reflection of a severe intestinal inflammation. And uh, there may be diarrhea. Uh, I have to say that it really depends on the age. So the younger the patient and the more severe initial uh, reaction, the more likely diarrhea is to follow within six to eight hours later. Um, and this is in mostly infantile condition. So it starts usually under 12 months. So, which means that it's really unlikely for a food that has been introduced for the first time directly to the infant after 12 months to produce FPIs with exception of fish and shellfish, which has uh, been reported as a trigger for FPIs in older children as well as, as adults. But just remember, this is a self-limiting condition. Symptoms uh, um, may need treatment, but they are self-resolving uh, uh, within 24 hours. And in between the episode, the child, the infant is growing well. So those are big, robust babies most of the time. Um, and oh, I should also mention that those reactions may occur uh, mostly through direct feeding. So when the food is being fed to the child, there are some rare reports in literature that you could see uh, FY's reaction through uh, exposure through the breast milk. But it's, it's rather uncommon. More common are milder sort of chronic type nonspecific symptoms, which then may manifest as immediate reaction during uh, feeding of the child. So the chronic uh, phenotype has been really described only in young infants who are fed continuously with milk or uh, soy formulas. Um, and uh, there it may be blood um, mucus in stools, but uh, diarrhea is usually water and quite frequent. Uh, there's intermittent emesis, but there's no pattern. There's no this clear, you know, one to four hours after feeding because the symptoms just, uh, you know, keep happening, but they are progressively worse. So um, it's, it's something that ultimately culminates in dehydration and, and you know, failure to thrive um, and some metabolic derangements. And the onset occurs early in life, first one to three months. Um, and those symptoms may take longer to resolve. Uh, frequently, there's delay in FY's diagnosis, and you know it's quite well understood that you know this delayed onset of symptoms, one to four hours, compared to immediate uh, food allergy, which happens within minutes, you know, to usually to half an hour, is uh, is a little bit uh, confusing. Um, I should mention that those uh, reactions, the FI's reactions occur in the absence of allergic skin and respiratory symptoms. So, so the staples of, of aller uh, food allergic reactions um, are not uh, seen uh, and, and they sort of throw uh, pediatricians as well as emergency room physicians off the stand of uh, food allergy. Um, in addition, there is this pallor, lethargy, uh, floppiness, septic appearance. Sometimes there's hypothermia. Um, and this sort of leads uh, people, uh, well, it leads us down the path of, uh, of uh, severe infection. And to make things even more confusing, because there is an evidence of uh, inflammatory, strong inflammatory response, if you, if you run some uh, CBC, you will find elevated, um, with differential, you will find elevated neutrophil count 
as well as uh, elevated uh, platelets, again, suggesting infection. And um, among the solid foods, uh, cereals, baby cereals, such as oat and rice, uh, are, um, you know, frequently are the most common uh, triggers of advice. Uh, and those are hypoallergenic uh, foods uh, in um, from the perspective of IgE-mediated food allergy. So, so it is really not uncommon for the child to undergo multiple reactions, it's median of two reactions because the diagnosis of food allergy is considered. And it is frequently considered by the caregiver or the parent before the medical professional uh, because you know, after two episodes of viral gastroenteritis that resolves promptly within hours, something just doesn't add up and parents start looking um, uh, at the diet. So this is a, a confusing food allergy. So let's just uh, recap those uh, key features. Um, so remember, it's typical onset at one year of age from majority of the foods such as cow's milk, soy, rice, oat, uh, but for uh, seafood it may start uh, in older children as well as adults. Um, there is no evidence of systemic food IgE by definition. This is a non-IgE mediated food allergy. However, there is a sub-phenotype, which is called a typical F-vice, which may have some positivity of the food to make things more confusing. Um, this is the only non-IgE mediated food allergy, well made with the exception of Heiner's syndrome, which was associated with the pulmonary hemosiderosis, that the reactions can be so severe. So there are rare situ uh, you know, cases that, that required um, you know, even intubation and mechanical ventilation. Fortunately, those are rare. However, no known fatalities have been reported to date. So uh, usually uh, non-IG-mediated food allergy are, are associated with more you know, chronic manifestations, you know, some fault, um, failure to thrive, but no uh, you know, kind of emergency situations. And, and in that regard, you know, for me, f is like an equivalent of anaphylaxis um, uh, for IG-mediated food allergies. Um, as we you know, pointed out, there's still uh, room for improvement in terms of recognition uh, and making a correct diagnosis. The um, difficulty with FYS diagnosis is that um, pathophysiology is really, our insight into pathophysiology is, is really quite limited. And uh, you know, the reactions occur in the gut um, and considering that majority of the children, young infants recover, um, there is no um, need to perform uh, uh, sort of invasive uh, diagnostic procedures to, to obtain samples from the gut. So we are stuck with testing for blood um, and this is not a great the greatest source so at this point we don't have biomarkers so you have to diagnose FPIs uh, uh, based on you know constellation of symptoms uh, as well as an oral food challenge which is our gold um, standard when it comes to food allergy diagnosis um, and again that's the similarity with anaphylaxis because you have to you, you recognize anaphylaxis based on the constellation of symptoms not because of a biomarker um, uh, this condition can be quite stressful, very dramatic, but prognosis is favorable. And in uh, our experience, majority of patients outgrow this condition by age three to five years. However, those three to five years can be very uh, traumatic experience, especially in young infants and quite a big uh, you know, quality of life burden for the uh, caregivers. So um, we've been always asking is this a rare disorder or a disorder rarely diagnosed? So, you know, is this a typical medical zebra? Well, um, we thought it, it is definitely a zebra 20 years ago, but then, um, you know, the reports from the uh, first report came from Israel, from a birth cohort, from a single hospital, but a large birth cohort of 13,000 children, of infants, and in that cohort, 0.5% were diagnosed with IgE mediated cow's milk allergy. Um, and 0.34% were diagnosed with milk FPIs in the first year of life. And this study is remarkable in a sense that diagnosis was confirmed by, the, it was a population-based study, diagnosis was confirmed by um, an oral food challenge in the hospital, which is rare in, in such a, uh, large studies. Um, and, uh, you know, more than half of the cases 
um, well, 30% of all of the cases of cosmic allergy in that cohort um, was uh, represented by um, cosmic FPIs. So this was the first study that really showed that the, the, this uh, diagnosis may be much more common than previously appreciated. Um, although I should admit that um, there's the, overall the, the, the prevalence or, or incidence of cosmic protein allergy in Israel is really low. So just for comparison in the US, the uh, conservative estimates uh, are about 2.2% um, uh, in, in pediatric population. So um, this, uh, this was a bit, you know, not quite reflective of, of our population. Uh, another study, more recent study from Spain, again, birth cohort, um, FPIs was diagnosed in 0.7% in the first year of life, um, and IgE-mediated food allergy was diagnosed in the 2.4% in the first year of life. Um, and the most common foods were cow's milk, uh, fish, um, and egg yolk. And, and this is interesting because cow's milk is, is sort of over, across the board, the most common um, uh, trigger as the first, usually the first foreign uh, food protein that is uh, being introduced directly to the infant. And then uh, fish, which doesn't really um, register in our patient populations, uh, is, is quite common as a, as a trigger in infants in Italy, uh, as well as in Spain probably reflecting their dietary um, uh, customs and early introduction. Um, and uh, in that study, also uh, food um, uh, diagnosis was uh, confirmed by an oral food challenge. And uh, it's worth pointing out that uh, among those five of the six um, infants that, that developed positive reactions during uh, the challenge, um, required treatment in intravenous fluids as well as ondansetron. So the reactions were again uh, quite severe. And the most recent study, which we were actually quite surprised to find that the prevalence of FIs was uh, reported at 0.51% uh, in um, pediatric population. Um, this wasn't a study that was uh, developed, uh, designed uh, to look at FIs. Actually, uh, it was a study designed to look at IG-mediated food allergy, but it was a cross-sectional population-based survey uh, between 2015 and 2016, which involved over 50,000 of U.S. households. And this, um, among many, many questions about IG-mediated food allergy, uh, there was a, a question um, for the participants, for the caregiver, has your child or have you ever been diagnosed by a physician with food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, F by its note? This is a very specific and rare allergic conditions. Um, and there are obviously questions about uh, other uh, allergic comorbidities. So, so this yielded the, you know, this estimate 0.551%. You can see the breakdown. But another important observation was that children with FYS at very high rates of other allergic conditions, including IgE-mediated food allergy, eosinophilic esophagitis, asthma, and seasonal allergies. And in this study, we also found that um, FIS was reported by adults, and 0.22% of U.S. adult population reported FIS. So altogether, this is close to a million of Americans uh, suffering from this condition. So by no stretch of uh, imagination, this is a rare disease um, and uh, definitely uh, deserving more um, you know, attention and more effort to find uh, more reliable diagnosis as well as some strategies to develop um, tolerance. But let's speak about um, you know, allergens. What are the triggers? And as you know, if you've seen patients with food allergy, you know you can see food allergy to anything. You can have an infant that reacts to kiwi or mango, but vast majority of the reactions are caused by uh, the most common food. So in the US, uh, in our studies at, at uh, Mount Sinai, we found that cow's milk um, and soy uh, were most common uh, in infants, followed by rice and oat. And then you can see um, you know, a variety of different uh, foods. And some of those early infant foods, like sweet potatoes or green peas, also showed up, as well as poultry. Um, and uh, we, uh, we also have even peanut uh, in that study. But the majority, what's important um, uh, you know, to convey to you is that the majority of the of, of infants react to one food, 
Um, and but one in three may have reactions to to more than one food. The majority react to two or three foods, but there's a small sliver of about 10%. So one in 10 um, infants react uh, to multiple solids that are being introduced early. And, and those children are most um, you know, sort of problematic and more challenging to manage in terms of um, you know, introducing the foods. It's not so difficult to figure out. You know, once you think about FBIs, you figure out what to avoid, but what to introduce, this is really uh, the big question. Um, and, uh, you know, th this is um, something that is, has been perplexing for us, but uh, obviously it has been confirmed by clinical observations, epidemiological observations that, um, you know, um, there, there is some sort of under, even though this is a non-IG mediated virology, there is a connection, maybe some common predisposition. So, um, the, mo the, the largest number of patients that we see have cow's milk uh, FBIs. And among those uh, infants, uh, we determined that about one in four develop positive IgE. So this is, um, this is described or referred to as a typical FBI. So they have this IgE positivity. It's usually low. Uh, you can detect it by skin testing more uh, um, readily than um, also with blood testing. Um, and interestingly, though, the majority of those, those infants or those children will still have FIs reactions. So even though they have some low, low levels of IgE, um, they will still react with delayed vomiting during the challenge. But one in three of those atypical FIs, and, and usually those that have you know, higher uh, specific IgE levels, actually will transition to immediate IgE-mediated cow's milk allergy. So, so this has a practical you know, importance uh, to us as allergists who are offering food challenges to, to evaluate for resolution of this, um, you know, this uh, disorder, because uh, there is a different challenge protocol when uh, when you're thinking, you know, typical FBIs where you have to, you know, just usually provide one, you know, a serving of food, um, and and you observe the child for, you know, at least four hours. When you think about a typical FBIs and you suspect there is a possibility of an immediate reaction, you have to sort of have a contingency. You know, in place in case they have immediate reactions, you also feed them more gradually in the, in that sort of more typical increments, uh, like for Ig mediated reactions. But you have to observe them uh, for a prolonged time. And um, overall, um, in one in three in our uh, population at Mount Sinai, we found that 30% of, of children have FIs will have Ig mediated food allergy to another food. And this sometimes is quite confusing because, you know, I, I, you, you don't think FIs in a child that has several, you know, classic anaphylactic type food allergies. And then we do a challenge, not, suspicious, not being suspicious of, of FIs reaction. Uh, and then having a discharging the patients after two hours and then having them, you know, run back from the parking lot with vomiting uh, to soy, which has uh, happened before. But there is this common predisposition. And in general, the thinking is that Ig does not play a role in pathophysiology or in the effector phase of those reactions, but, but reflects the common predisposition. Uh, as I mentioned before, this can be quite traumatic, especially if, you, if you've seen, you know, I'm not sure if I'm conveying this kind of uh, trauma to the caregivers, to the, uh, but um, if you've seen um, taking care of those infants, you know that th this is a, a big deal uh, for the families. But the natural history is really uh, very favorable. So in the study from Israel, by two, age two years, uh, there's a resolution of uh, cow's milk FBIs in 90% of the cases and 50% and by age one. So, so, so it is a self-limiting disorder of infancy, like um, many of the, um, uh, like most of the IgE-mediated food allergies. Um, when we looked at the population that wasn't, a, you know, a, a popu you know, sort of general population, um, and we look at our patients, then the natural history looks slightly different. So, for instance, for um, cow's milk Ig, the median age of, of resolution was five years. For rice, about 4.7. Soy, 6.7, and oat, um, four years. So, um, and uh, in in that particular cohort, when we had kids that had atypical FBIs, uh, all of them, you know, had more persistent. Uh, form of allergy. So there are 
you know, cases of, of teenagers or cases of, you know, of young adults that are still having reactions, but this is very unusual. So when, you, when you're talking to the parents and you're sort of trying to explain the, 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 the chances are that this is going to, that this condition is going to be resolved by age three to five years. Um, I mentioned FYC in older children and adults. So over the years, we had uh, we've heard some anecdotal reports um, with an onset in adulthood, but uh, natural history is largely unknown. More recently, there are several publications highlighting that uh, seafood um, and uh, shellfish, particularly scallop shrimp, but also some other foods uh, that have been implicated. Um, and some of the um, of those reports uh, documented uh, FPIs in adults through an uh, supervised physician supervised food challenge, um, and reported quite dramatic symptoms. So. Um, very severe abdominal pain, crampy, very unpleasant, you know, lasting hours, starting within, you know, one to four hours after ingestion, accompanied by pain, um, I'm sorry, by nausea, um, as well vomiting. So, so uh, definitely this is um, an area that requires further study. Um, and we don't really know how many in that study that we've done um, in the U.S., we don't we don't have a good understanding what are the triggers um, for FYC in adults in the U.S. Um, so, recognizing that FYC has become a, a clinical problem in 2017, we've we've put together a group of um, international group of experts and, and and clinicians with experience, and we've published the consensus guidelines for diagnosis and management of food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. Um, this is an open access, so if you ever were interested, this is a, a pretty uh, decent resource because it's quite practical. Um, and we've included in that group of experts, not only allergists, but also gastroenterologists, uh, registered dietitians, nurses, emergency room physicians, as well intensive care um, in intensivists. Um, and lay patient organizations. So we have redefined uh, acute uh, diagnostic criteria. So the major criterion is vomiting within one to four hours in absence of skin and respiratory symptoms um, and the presence of three or of more of minor criteria. So more than one episode to the same food, um, repetitive emesis to another food, lethargy, pallor, you know, with those reactions, emergency room visits, um, need for intravenous fluids uh, and, and diarrhea in 24 hours, so usually um, five to 10 hours uh, from the ingestion of the food. Um, and uh, if, if those criteria are met, you can be um, you know, comfortable with the diagnosis and uh, food challenges are not required for the, um, for the initial diagnosis. I have to say, I, I don't even recall uh, performing food challenge for the initial diagnosis of FYS. The only challenges I've done over those years were to document or to evaluate for a resolution for tolerance development. So that was acute FYS. So chronic FYS, as you might suspect, is not so straightforward. And uh, you know, here uh, we focus on the resolution of symptoms within days following elimination of the offending food and then acute recurrence of symptoms when the food is reintroduced with onset of vomiting within one to four hours and diarrhea within 24 hours. So, um, with, however, without performing a challenge or, or having an, an um, sort of accidental reaction which reproduces acute symptoms, the diagnosis of chronic FYS remains presumptive. And this creates some of the confusion because a lot of the milder symptoms are being labeled as, as chronic FBIs and, and uh, I think that this is uh, misguided because if you make a diagnosis of, of FBIs and has sort of implications for how you're going to reintroduce the food. So the management uh, is uh, pretty, uh, it's like management of any food allergy. Um, Long-term management relies on the elimination of food proteins with periodic re-evaluations for tolerance every 12 to 24 months. This really depends on the, on the individual circumstances, how important is the food nutritionally, socially, you know, as well as, you know, how severe were um, prior reactions. This, the, the challenges for, uh, for uh, in FBIs are very traumatic and 
not that they're dangerous, it's just very unpleasant, you know, having child, having abdominal pain, nausea, and repetitive vomiting. Um, and, and they are not so uh, eager to, uh, to repeat uh, this uh, experience. In infants, uh, especially if they've reacted to several, this 10%, this sliver, little sliver of RFI that reacted to multiple solids, and it's important to pay attention to feeding skills because some of those infants are end up being fed with really restricted diets and um, being exclusively breastfed and they're, they're 12 months old and, and this is really not right. Um, so um, linking to this timely introduction of complementary solid foods, um, it's really important to introduce some solids to identify safe foods. Um, those kids usually don't, um, those 10% of, of those that have multiple food reactions uh, will have to go slow. They're going to have limited uh, repertoire of foods, but nevertheless, they need to have uh, solids introduced to, to, to hone those uh, feeding skills. Uh, it's important to provide emergency plan, what to do in case of the reaction. And obviously, if there is an acute reaction, then manage those emergencies. So um, just remember, FYS, it, it's a, could be a medical emergency. So it may require um, aggressive fluid resuscitation, um, and, and there is a risk of a hypovolemic shock. And under normal uh, sort of conditions, our uh, recommendation is to, to go to the emergency room and to um, you know, be there under observation. And uh, if, if symptoms worsen or are persistent, then uh, treatment involves fluid, intravenous fluid uh, hydration, um, uh, a, a single dose of uh, a steroid may be given. It's based on, on the studies that shown this uh, strong inflammatory response. Um, and some uh, Japanese studies have shown significantly elevated CRP during FYS reaction. Um, ondansetron or Zofran has been uh, used for management. Um, and there's no, there are no controlled trials in FPIs. Obviously, the, the application of ondansetron is based on the empiric evidence uh, um, and the use of ondansetron in other conditions associated with vomiting. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, for children, uh, infants with FPIs, uh, epinephrine generally is not helpful in acute reaction. So, um, just to give you an example, if, you, if I have a child that is reacting, um, that has IgE-mediated food allergy and develops vomiting uh, in addition to hives or uh, you know, coughing during an uh, allergic reaction during the challenge and I administer um, intramuscular epinephrine, this really works beautifully. So within a few minutes, the child feels much better and it you know, stops vomiting and uh, symptoms are subsiding. For, um, for FBIs, you know, giving them epinephrine doesn't really stop vomiting. It's, it doesn't make a difference. Um, so we don't, you know, unless you, you can provide fluid replacement or um, an end on uh, densetron, so anti-emetic. So we do not prescribe epinephrine to injectors routinely to children with FBIs unless there's a typical FBIs, unless we are concerned about um, about um, you know immediate reactions. However, uh, in in the ex in the extreme cases, uh, there there could be a need for vasopressors and life support. And there there is then, um, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, those cases are fortunately uh, quite um, uncommon. So uh, during the COVID pandemic, um, you know, we, we thought that this, uh, um, the recommendations to activate emergency uh, medical services immediately upon any symptoms were, were probably not the, uh, the safest considering exposure to COVID uh, in the crowded emergency room, as well as, um, as, well as prolonged uh, time uh, you know, to the arrival of the EMS. So uh, we, we have proposed a an, an different algorithm and basically, I don't, I don't wanna go through this in detail, but um, you know, if there's a child that had very severe reaction that required prolonged hospitalization support, then obviously activate emergency services, go to the emergency room, you know, in a private car if, if available. Um, and if you have an unsetron, administer it um, orally. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, hopefully that uh, um, this may alleviate vomiting. Um, and on the, on the Cetron, you know, it's, it's approved down to six months of age. Um, it has the potential for prolonging QT interval, but um, unless there's a family history of, um, 
you know, syncope, heart uh, arrhythmias, long uh, QT, then uh, we are using uh, onansetron in those infants. Um, and if they vomit within uh, within 10 minutes, we would uh, we could repeat the dose, but not don't exceed two doses. Um, uh, then more common scenario would be for moderate pus FIS reaction um, that were treated with intravenous hydration here uh, or in the emergency room or hospital. Here we would, uh, um, you know, uh, try to manage at home, um, and uh, we would uh, administer onansetron at home. Um, and uh, if, if symptoms uh, appear, then the patient would, um, uh, despite onansetron or, or worsen, um, then we would say, okay, try to get close to the ER, don't go to the ER, uh, but um, you know, attempt oral rehydration. Um, and, and so hopefully you will avoid uh, visiting the emergency department. But if the symptoms, even if there's no history of severe symptoms in the past, but symptoms are severe at this kind of reaction, I would say, um, you know, such as lethargy or unresponsiveness, a child being floppy with dusky appearance, then I would say, yes, you know, don't definitely activate emergency services. Um, and then for mild reactions, and would really try to uh, re, um, manage at home. Um, and again, on the set round and an oral rehydration um, and only if the symptoms progress or are unresponsive to management, um, then uh, consider emergency room. So, so this, this, um, this approach is, is really um, sort of applicable to the situation of limited access or, or prolonged time for uh, emergency uh, services. Um, and hopefully once the situation goes back to normal, uh, we can be um, you know, res res resuming the, the regular management um, and uh, in the meantime, keep our patients safe. Um, dietary management of FBIs is, is probably uh, quite, um, can be quite challenging, um, but the, there's some um, sort of basics. So we avoid food strictly. However, um, we know that vast majority of the children, uh, infants with FIs uh, react to uh, more than a trace amount. So in the Israeli study, the, the median dose of milk was about 30 ml, so it's an ounce of milk. So this is not a trace amount. So, so unlike some of the IgE-mediated food allergies, we definitely do not add advice to avoid uh, foods with the uh, precautionary labeling. Uh, we do recommend avoidance of baked milk and egg. This hasn't been uh, really well studied. So unless a child has documented ingestions without symptoms, don't assume that baked milk or, or egg will be better tolerated than liquid milk uh, or egg in those child infants. Um, if the infant is um, breastfed, um, and uh, re re reacts to the food on direct feeding, we don't restrict maternal diet unless there are symptoms, um, acute or chronic, or the infant is not thriving. Uh, in case of infants reacting to cow's milk and soy, um, we would um, use hypoallergenic formula, extensively hydrolyzed formula, or uh, in some cases, amino acid-based formula. It is very uh, helpful to have to involve a registered dietitian in management of those uh, infants, um, younger, uh, you know, the more important is this, or, or if they're uh, breastfed to, to advise, um, you know, to um, on maternal diet. Um, there is a co-reactivity. So, you know, if the child reacts to milk, there's a, a pretty good chance they will react to soy, about 40%. And then if they react to one cereal, then they have about 50% chances of reacting to another baby cereal. So uh, it just has practical implications because, you know, if the child reacted to rice, you, you know, you would, then your next solid foods wouldn't be oat or wheat. Um, but still, you know, uh, don't be afraid to introduce solids. Do it uh, without uh, substantial delays. It, it, can, it, it will be slower, but, but it should happen. And then obviously monitor growth in those infants. Again, there is, um, uh, you know, some, uh, a new publication from Marion Grouch, which uh, is currently in press in the Annals of Allergy, Asthma Immunology. So if you are uh, taking care of those infants, maybe a good resource, just basically uh, tell, it's, it's um, emphasizing that uh, during the pandemic, um, you know, introduction of solids that occurs at home um, should be undertaken with special uh, precautions and, and at a slower pace. And I should mention that also during the, the 
pandemic, we, we recommended not uh, performing food challenges to evaluate for resolution. This certainly can be deferred until the situation settles down. It is important to remember uh, uh, about iron and uh, vitamin D supplementation um, in younger infants. So I don't know if we have time and whether we would stop here, but um, I just, uh, I, I thought that I would just quickly go over my uh, patients that I had seen um, as a new patient via, via telemedicine, but it's like a very typical um, situation. So that's a six months old, exclusively breastfed, mom avoids oat and large amounts of dairy, um, and this she was exclusively breastfed since birth um, because, and, and mom, mom, um, mom modified her diet because uh, Charlotte was always gassy and, and sort of uh, just uncomfortable. Um, and uh, she has had three reactions to oatmeal, oatmeal with probiotics, uh, oatmeal with, without probiotics, oatmeal with banana, uh, actually four reactions, oatmeal with prunes. And uh, those, uh, the third and fourth reactions were sort of classic uh, FYS reactions with three to four hours after feeding, repetitive vomiting, ashen appearance, you know, dry heaving. But after three hours of those symptoms, she recovered at home um, and she started uh, uh, to breastfeed, although she had some uh, um, um, diarrhea with jelly-like stools for her one and a half weeks uh, following the reaction. She was actually diagnosed with viral gastroenteritis. And then uh, five days later, she was uh, again given oatmeal and um, this time it was really classic. So um, this um, child was referred to me um, and uh, the recommendation, well, the diagnosis was suspected uh, um, FYS to oatmeal, acute FYS to oatmeal, uh, possibly banana and uh, prunes. Um, and uh, the recommendations were to uh, avoid cereal grains as well as other solids until her mom eliminated old rice and dairy from her own week uh, diet for one week. And this was based on the, on that you know, uh, on the reports of discomfort. Um, and it was actually some of those uh, uh, um, mom, the mother actually uh, went a little bit farther and restricted her own diet uh, even more. Um, and then we said, you know, after that one week, um, Charlotte could start adding low-risk foods as per specific instructions. And those low-risk foods are um, vegetables like broccoli, cauliflower, parsnip, or pumpkin. So uh, at a two-week follow-up, it turned out that the, ma uh, the Charlotte's mom decided to eliminate oat, rice, and large amounts of dairy from her diet, but also eliminated egg, avocado, salmon, shrimp, and barley because she thought that uh, um, uh, Charlotte was more... Uh, reacting with some non-disturbed symptoms. And, and she reported that since she uh, eliminated these foods from her diet, she, the baby has been much happier. Um, they have introduced cauliflower. There was no reaction, but she was, didn't, baby didn't like the taste. However, she uh, also tried pear uh, and seems to enjoy it. And uh, Charlotte's mom was very sort of focused on trying um, dairy as well as peanut because she was very worried that we are missing the window of opportunity to introduce peanuts. So um, I advise against introducing dairy at this point and peanut. Uh, we discussed introducing other solid foods of lower sort of potential, such as turn turnip, pumpkin, berries, um, uh, followed by green bean, white bean, corn, and quinoa, uh, but to continue to avoid grains, uh, cereal, uh, cereal grains, such as oatmeal, rice, barley, and wheat in Charlotte's diet, and definitely start iron supplementation. She's been already supplemented with vitamin D. And the FBIS uh, guidelines have this uh, table that is totally empirical, but basically, you know, gives you some ideas. What are the the foods that could be tried at different ages and, and stages of development and, and their sort of uh, broad assessment if it's a lower risk or higher risk food. Um, so the foods that trigger FY should be introduced under supervision. So unlike other non-IgE mediated food allergies where those introduction occurs at home, uh, this, this is done under supervision. Those food challenges are usually repeated, uh, defer at least for 12, 24 months from the most recent FY's reaction. And uh, the, um, we do, uh, uh, do place IV access before the challenge. So I do those challenges in the hospital and we are ready to provide treatment. So in summary, FYS is a non-IG mediated food allergic disorder. Uh, the management like in any food allergy relies on the elimination of the food trigger. And if you're eliminating something, you have to 
substitute for it. So, uh, you know, if this milk, then you have to use hypoallergenic formula um, and uh, it's helpful to involve registered dietitian. Uh, FYS can be a medical emergency, so keep it in mind um, that 15% of, uh, of uh, cases present with hypotension with reactions, so I have healthy respect for those, um, those patients. But in general, it has a favorable prognosis with majority outgrowing this uh, by uh, three, school age. Uh, so we do offer periodic reevaluations every 12 to 24 months under physician supervision, so this is uh, in a form of food challenge. Um, I just want to point out there's some open access um, um, resources. So the, the guidelines that we discussed before, there's also um, IMAP international um, uh, interpretation of the milk allergy in primary care guideline and then um, diagnosis and management of non-IG gastrointestinal um, allergies in infants, um, in breastfed infants. Um, so I want to uh, end with this, the, uh, the message that we, we do have a, a, a ICD-10 um, specific code for FBIS, it's K52.2, so it would be great if you, if you ever see patients, you suspect, or you have established a diagnosis that you use the that you will use this uh, diagnostic code and um, very exciting. We are, we are uh, going to have the uh, first FBIS workshop at NIH, NIAID. Um, this workshop was scheduled for March, uh, actually April 1st of this year and obviously was uh, uh, rescheduled. Um, so we're now hoping for November. So keep your fingers crossed for us that we'll be able to hold this. This is a, this is a big milestone because it's usually, you know, it's like a brainstorming session and it frequently leads to some funding opportunities. Um, so this would represent a major development uh, in our studies and quest for, you know, finding a biomarker. So thank you very much for your attention. This is a view from my home. I actually live in Brooklyn. Um, and um, as I see Midtown, I see my hospital, my office, and I'm hoping to go back there within a couple of weeks. Thank you. And if, if we have time, I'll be happy to take uh, questions if there are any. Thanks. Thank you, Anya. That was uh, fabulous. And that's a beautiful view of, uh, of New York City. Um, and we all hope to get back there very soon, of course. Uh, so thank you very much for really truly an outstanding presentation of a topic that keeps pediatricians up at night all the time. <laughs> uh, this is a question that, that all of us have. And, uh, you know, my training is in infectious disease, uh, but I get uh, often uh, roped into a situation where these kids come in with a sepsis-like syndrome. And, and, you know, that's sort of an initial presentation and it can be quite sick, obviously. Um, we, have, uh, we have time for some questions. I, uh, and then the first one is if uh, in symptomatic infants who are breastfed, um, and I'm trying to read here, and, uh, and mom does not want formula, is that an indication to change maternal diet? Yes. So, so it depends, you know, like how, how you define the symptoms, right? So, you know, if they have acute symptoms, which are rare during breastfeeding, and you can identify the, the food trigger, yes. Uh, if symptoms are, if the baby is not thriving and doesn't have acute symptoms, but, but it's not growing, um, then, you know, you sort of, and, and you have no idea which foods and the, the most common are the most common. So you probably start from dairy and, um, and uh, you know, we could consider, you know, soy if, if it's a big part of the diet. Um, and uh, so, so the, the important message here is that, um, you know, the, the, if, if symptoms are very mild, okay, and, and the kid is, you know, irritable or, you know, just a little more fussy, um, you really would want to try to avoid extensive dietary manipulation in the mother because there can be some really um, extensive changes in the diet that are detrimental uh, to the infant. And, and those symptoms in infant may be totally, you know, unrelated. Having said so, I just gave you this example of Charlotte's mom who, you know, sort of on her own uh, went to great lengths, but she's quite reasonable. And when we talked about this, 
I said, okay, you know, uh, after two weeks, you, you know, what, because she saw, she saw major improvement, then say, um, after two weeks, let's start, let's reintroduce those foods into your diet so we can pinpoint which foods is actually causing it. So, so there's a difference between the diagnostic elimination diet and a therapeutic elimination diet. And I think this distinction sometimes gets lost and we sort of jump to the therapeutic elimination diet that is then maintained for prolonged periods of time. If, if you can convince the parent to say, okay, let's try it for a limited time and then let's reintroduce the food one by one into your diet so we just really uh, only avoid what's uh, absolutely necessary. I think if you have a, 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 a mother who really, um, you know, is, is extremely worried and for, you know, for many different reasons, but, but she's attributing symptoms rightly or not rightly to, to, to the foods in her diet, I, I think it's very important to have a, a dietitian involved and, and really monitoring what is the mother eating because sometimes this can be really um, extreme, you know. Um, they will eat uh, really very strange uh, uh, diets and the kid is deficient in vitamin D and iron and, and this is serious. We so remember, you, uh... yeah, try just for a limited time and try, you know, reintroduce the food. Okay, the next question is, uh, uh, t can you talk about F-Pies to uh, purple coloring agent? No, but uh, I've I have, <laughs> no, I mean, uh, well, you know, there are different. Food, I guess food colorants in general. <laughs> I, they, food, you know, I haven't, I, I, I have not come across this. I mean, yes, I say uh, you can have food allergy to anything. It sort of depends, you know, how convinced you are that that's causing it. I have never really uh, been able to prove a food allergy of any of any kind to to any coloring agent. So uh, I would say, you know, it depends. Okay, um, if it's really very dramatic, then uh, you know, um, then send them to the allergist and and you know, sort of consider a child. I mean, you know a challenge or if you if you really seriously suspect suspect it if somebody tells you oh my child will react whenever there is this food of that color you know that then it's uh and and it leads to significant dietary restrictions and you know it's really good to to take it to the next level and and um and work it up you know appropriately to avoid again dietary restrictions thanks uh, the, the next question is uh, is there a situation with uh where perhaps a a baby will have a, an apparent FPIs to maybe a food product uh, where there's suspicion of a food product and then it's fine with subsequent uh, exposures. So maybe just the one instance, severe reaction and then doesn't happen again. How do you deal with that? Well, I, well, then like, obviously if they can tolerate the food, that's great. I mean, uh, and I'm assuming there's like an accident. I mean, you know, those symptoms are, are nonspecific and, and, you know, could be there something, you know, really maybe there was a viral infection. Maybe there's something that just didn't sit right. And, and, you know, th those reactions happen in, in young infants and they really are in the, in the period of adjustment, right? Like this immune system in the gut is developing and there could be some sort of one-off strange reactions. But I would say the most important thing, you know, if, if, if this, uh, you know, if this is the food is well tolerated and continue. And when you look at the studies from Israel and when you look at the, there are some other reports that I didn't mention from Korea where they were pretty, um, you know, strict about repeating challenges. They found that now, 80% of soy F is resolved by age uh, eight months. So, sort of depends. You know, it, it may be that it was just a very sort of short-lived allergy, and now it's it's gone. I think there's a clarifying question that many of the back to the purple that uh, at least in one kid's case, the many of the many of the foods that triggered a reaction were purple. So. So it's probably not even the, the colors. No, not, not the, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I think the common denominator is probably there were foods that were introduced around the same time. I, I don't know, at least that's in, in my, I, I think it's, in some regards, I almost feel like sometimes it's not so much the food as the, as the person, as the patient. Like if you mm -hmm. get them at the wrong time when they're not ready, they, will, they may react to a lot of different unrelated foods. And this, this is the, this 10%. Um, of, of the infants that may have multiple reactions. And the only thing, you know, I, I would say is that it, it really helps how you talk to the parents, you know, they're incredibly anxious and worried. And, and you know, if, if you can sort of open the conversation with this, you know, I know this is very scary right now, but the, 
you know, it'll go away, it'll get better, you know, it's, it's not for life, and, and the kid is going to be, you know, enjoying a normal diet. Um, and it, it really gets much, much better after the first year of life. And then, you know, with every month, the kid is tolerating more and more food. So it is really important to work with them and encourage, you know, introduction of foods. And if they're worried, you know, send them to the allergies, we can do challenges to introduce the foods and, and sort of take it from there. We have time for two more questions. One, one that I have myself is how, how do you differentiate this from, from mastocytosis? That's, a, that's something that has come up in the past that, because that some of the symptoms may be similar. And I know it's very difficult to diagnose mastocytosis. How would you approach that? Well, I mean, like if you had a suspicion, then you would do tryptase, right? Like you, you'll measure serum tryptase and, you know, tryptase in FYS is normal. It, it doesn't even go up during the acute reactions. I mean, so so that that's an easy way. Like if you if you have suspicious and you know there's a rash or you know, um, then. Uh, but I would say you know usually when you suspect mastocytosis in older patients, um, that would be chronic FIs, right? Like this wouldn't be uh, mastocytosis doesn't give you those acute reactions. Um, but yeah, I, I would say tryptase is, is your go-to test to, to consider, um, and it's easy, and it's widely available. Great. Thank you. Uh, Thank it's you. Close, it's close to nine, Anya. I really appreciate your participation in, in this Grand Rounds. Uh, I hope to have you here uh, for a real visit, uh, and hopefully with, uh, <laughs> we'll share some wine and not get any anaphylaxis to go somewhere, some good wine. Okay. Uh, oh, no, least, you... Uh, you cannot have enough access to good wine. No, no. <laughs> That's a good thing to know. So uh, we'll continue to drink some good wine. So I really appreciate it. Please stay safe. And Jeffrey, thank you very much for inviting Anya. That was a fantastic presentation. If you have additional questions, please do send them. We'll be able to uh, uh, answer uh, offline uh, to you. Of and course. Thank you. Uh, thank thank you. you for attending and have a great rest of the week, rest, uh, rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.